Welcome to the Media Navigators podcast, brought to you by the World Media Group. My name is Belinda Barker, and I'm the Chief Executive. Today, we're going to be talking about the events industry. In the UK alone, it's estimated to be worth £42 billion. Most marketeers have events within their portfolio for getting deeper engagement with both their clients and consumers. But COVID has completely changed the industry. The last six months, they've experienced exceptional change. Today's podcast is going to have a slightly different format than normal. We're going to turn or at least reverse the roles a little bit. And we're having a guest co-host in the person of Jacob Howard. Jacob is the Vice President of Marketing for Deutsche Bank and is also the chair of the Chartered Institute of Marketing's FS Group, Financial Services Group. He works organising a wide spectrum of marketing activities, um, but also organising events on behalf of Deutsche Bank, um, being involved as a a sponsor or exhibitor of, of other events, and in fact, has a large event that he's organising next week. So first of all, I'd just like to welcome you, Jacob. Are you well today? How are you coping? Very good, Belinda. And thank you for inviting me to speak on this uh, podcast. I'm happy to contribute. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Jacob. And Jacob and I will be talking to Orson Francesconi. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly, but I'm sure you'll correct me, who is the Managing Director of FT Live at the Financial Times. Orson took on this role literally three months before the beginning of lockdown. The FT is an incredible brand with an enormous reputation in the events area. And I'm delighted to say that also a member of the World Media Group. But... As soon as he got his feet under the desk, the whole world changed and COVID hit. So that's going to be the main subject of what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, But first of all, I'd like to welcome Orson, who's currently in Italy. Not sure where in Italy, Milan, perhaps? Hi, Belinda. uh, I'm actually in Rome at the moment, and it's uh, Orson Francescone, but please... uh, don't, don't worry, I've, I've lived with uh, all my life with either Italians getting my first name wrong or people uh, uh, in, outside of Italy getting my Italian name wrong. So I'm used to it. <laughs> so how, obviously Francesconi, Italian, Orson comes from? Well, Orson is actually originally a French name, but I'm half Irish, half Italian. And so I grew, I grew up in, in Rome and then I went to university in Ireland and then I landed in the UK uh, around the 2005 mark, and I um, uh, I joined a company called Euromoney Institutional Investor, which is a financial publishing company, as a event content producer. Uh, and as most people who work in events, I fell into it completely by chance, not by design. Uh, and that's really how I started my journey into B2B events and, and running events for media owners. So the FT role must have been a, a bit of a, a 
you know, best job in a lifetime. Wow, I've landed this this amazing role. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how, how you went around, you know, turning around this this business to to into the virtual world, and um, and also a, a little bit about the scale of the FT. Um, events business you know how how many people around the world are are you working with yes so uh, in answer to your first question yes the the ft live managing director was very much a kind of a dream job really and uh, i had started my career in the financial publishing um business and then i I worked for for other media owners uh, and then i got a call about a year and a half ago now uh, and it was one of those calls that were really uh, once-in-a-lifetime opportunities. And so um, very uh, happy to join the FT at the end of November. And on the 17th of March this year was my three-month kind of 90-day-in uh, anniversary when I was due to present my strategy to the board. Uh, uh, and that morning, uh, I woke up with a raging fever with something that turned out to be COVID, if you can believe it or not. Um, anyway, luckily, I didn't have a, 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 a terribly aggressive form of it, but um, that strategy never got presented to the board. Uh, and then we went into lockdown. And essentially now, six months later, the face of the FT Live business is completely different to what it was three months ago, um, six months ago, sorry. And so that, that strategy is kind of gone completely out the window. Um, and the only way I kind of can describe what we've been through is really uh, I just as you know just joined the FT and I, I the, the, my thought was very much well I'll be damned if I'm going to let this uh, affect my new job really I, I can't just let this kind of uh, happen to me on my watch and I've just I've just joined my dream job and so I very much remember thinking that the 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 two strategic drivers were speed and chasing customer value. I, I knew that getting out quickly was going to be really, really important uh, as a signal to our clients, uh, but also internally to the FT. And just to, to give you an idea of the shape of the business, FT Live is a global business with a, around 100 people in the team, uh, primarily based in London, but with offshoots in Hong Kong, uh, New York, um, Singapore, Manila, and Tokyo. And so it's a truly global business, and we run in a normal year, over 200 events uh, from conferences, primarily B2B conferences. Uh, We run a couple of uh, consumer festivals. um, And also we have a clientele event business where we run bespoke events for some of our clients. So that'll give you an idea of of our business. Uh, And up until March or April, these were all physical events running in five-star hotels or convention centers. And so when we went into lockdown, um, you know, I remember this feeling of, well, we can't just let events kind of dictate to us and we we must react quickly. Um, And the first thing we did was we launched something very simple, which is called a webinar. And as you know, webinars have been around for many, many years. uh, And we launched it with, we turned it around in four days time. um, And we ended up with 8,000 people registering for this webinar. And that was a real light bulb moment for us. You know, we hadn't hadn't forecasted any numbers, but I, I think if anyone had asked me how many people would register on that, we, I probably would have said in the hundreds. And so when we saw eight thousand people registering for this, we were like, "Crikey, this is this is a lot bigger than we we ever expected." 
Uh, and so that got us thinking of, well, could we do something slightly bigger and bolder? Uh, and so that's when we launched this concept of the Global Boardroom Conference. And so the Global Boardroom really was a um, very ambitious project. Uh, it was a three-day event with about 120 speakers globally addressing the crisis that we were going through. Um, and we launched that in April and we delivered it in March. Um, and that was probably one of the craziest event projects I have ever worked on. Because if anyone can imagine a conference with 120 speakers, you will all know that these kind of size of projects usually take a 12 to 24 month lead time. Um, and we produced this in about four weeks and we ended up with over 50,000 people registering for this event. Yeah, I was going to say, I've, I've heard of that one, Orson. Uh, it really did go around the industry as uh, as a, as a completely new and huge deal. Um, so congratulations on that. Thank you, Jacob. Thank you. And, uh, you know, the, the, the biggest issue that we had to grapple with, which I'm sure people are going to resonate with, is the technology aspect. And so here's a, a team that is very adept at delivering high-level uh, conferences and exhibitions in physical format, and suddenly we're thrust into having to deliver something in a digital format, which we had never had to do. Um, and as we all know, event technology, uh, the event technology space is complex, complicated, fragmented, uh, and nothing that is out there was built with COVID in mind. And so any tech products out in the market were always built with the idea that these were kind of ancillary products to tag onto physical events. And nothing was built with a, a, a digital first or digital only mindset. And so grappling with the technology has been one of the toughest things we've had to do. Um, and to cut a long story short, uh, I can tell you that the night before the global boardroom event, uh, I got a message from uh, our technology director saying that we, uh, we had been hacked and that our Zoom speaker links, invite links had been leaked on the dark web. Uh, and I, I I obviously, I obviously thought that he was joking because this was the night before the event. Uh, and of course he wasn't joking. <laughs> he wasn't joking. And so, if, I mean, can you imagine? And so there's a, the, that, the dark web is just terrifying. And so there was somebody selling uh, the links to the speaker links to the global boardroom on the dark web, just incredible. And so we had to change everything overnight. And then we had a, uh, and so that was kind of a really weird kind of thing. And then we had a, a more, like what I call traditional cyber attack, where, where again, the night before, where somebody tried to, tried to bring down our servers and so our event website. Uh, I mean, listen, the reality is sometimes the FT, because of, I guess, our stance on free press and independent, independent thought, uh, there are some people around the world that aren't the, our biggest fans. And so, uh, anyway, luckily, our, our cybersecurity team were able to deal with that. And Eventually, on the day, um, the, the event ran very smoothly. Um, what we did notice, though, is that our, um, you know, the people's behaviors online are completely different. And so our, our numbers of registrations uh, doubled on, on the first day. So we went into day one of the global boardroom with about 25,000 people registered. Uh, and by the end of the three days, we'd had 52,000 people who had registered for the event. And so again, these are kind of numbers we just weren't used to. They're kind of head-spinning head numbers if you're 
you know, I, I've worked in large scale exhibitions and those are the kind of numbers you get on large scale exhibitions. But you know, these are events that take years and years and years to build. And suddenly you build something in four weeks and you, 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 you get this incredible momentum. Uh, and so that was the, probably the biggest kind of catalyst for us, Belinda and Jacob, that kind of, kind of told us that there was something in this that, that we could confidently uh, turn all of our business around into what is now 100% um, digital events business. So uh, I had a question. You were saying about um, the kind of uh, global scope of your team. Uh, did you find during the, uh, the, the, the COVID crisis that uh, that different regions were more willing to go virtual sooner or, 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 or not? Um, that's a really good question, Jacob. I guess I'd never, never thought of it that way. I suspect, I mean, the beauty of digital, of course, um, eh, which we didn't have in the physical presence, is that suddenly an event's geolocation kind of didn't make any sense or didn't exist anymore, right? Um, and suddenly, you know, we were used to a world where we were constrained by the physical location of an event and we were constrained by the size of a venue. Uh, and suddenly we have this business model where... Uh, we have infinite inventory that we can sell. So we can sell as many tickets as we like uh, at close to zero marginal cost because adding an extra virtual delegate costs is close to nothing. Um, and we can reach every corner of the world. And that is kind of one of the biggest, you know, there are lots of downsides. That, um, um, there are lots of negatives of not being able to run physical events. Uh, but there are also lots of positives. And so the thought of having a product that every person in, in the world could access if they wanted to um, is a really compelling compelling product. And so in terms of demand from different regions, I guess, um, I mean, we've seen most of our business, Jacob, is based uh, UK, Europe, and USA. And so I guess, I guess in, in the numbers we saw, those were the kind of the, they followed the usual patterns in terms of where most of our su subscribers are based. Uh, and Asia as well, obviously. Um, and so I don't, think we, I don't think we could draw any inferences in terms of appetite for going digital. Because remember, you know, up until recently, in fact, even, even now, you know, most of the world just doesn't have a, chance, a choice, right? So there, it's not as if people can choose between physical and digital. And so really there is only one choice at the moment. Do you... Um, do people engage differently to virtual events than, than they do to to real ones i mean we we've experienced i mean the world media group i'm not trying to compare our events to to yours we're, we're very small and very niche but but i've uh, we certainly at the beginning experienced uh, far greater numbers attending uh, our events and on a much broader geography you know people from paraguay i mean I'm, god knows who who it was from paraguay but it, sticks in my head as, as something that I remember. Um, but uh, how, how are you finding that engagement experience? And, and also, I mean, you, you talked a bit earlier about, I mean, that amazing job, how you managed to, to get 120 speakers all, all lined up. I mean, uh, I'm finding that, that, that the content that we're creating has to be, even better curated that, than a live event it has to be really, really spot on or you, or, or you lose people very quickly. So they're, they're tending to be slightly shorter. 
Um, and, and yeah, I, I'm certainly struggling with the how to get more interaction going, you know, m making sure that people feel involved and get, getting that, you know, flow going. Um, what, what are your top tips? Yeah, so, I mean, these are all really good points. So the way I kind of see this is um, imagine that there's a big earthquake that happens and, you know, the, you know, March and COVID and the lockdown was the big earthquake. And then it's followed by lots of little aftershocks, really. And it takes time for the dust to settle. And so I'm pretty sure that the, the models and the formats that we saw, um, that we're seeing now, or we saw over the past six months, are going to be very different in the next year, year and a half. And so as customer behavior changes and modifies, you will see uh, different event formats and different event types. So, for example you know, the way people tend to book on digital events is very different to the way they tend to book on, on live events, right? And so on live events, people need to block out their diaries, they need to take into account travel, they need to book a hotel. And so that buying decision gets made, you know, we, usually weeks in advance. Uh, unfortunately, in the digital world, I say unfortunately, because it's not good for our, for our blood pressure and our heart rate, uh, people can make very, very last minute decisions, right? And so you can literally make a decision to attend a virtual event from your from your bed on the morning of the event, depending on how you feel or how your diary is looking. Um, and that is, uh, it's great for consumers because it gives them lots of choice and options. Not great for event organizers because it's incredibly difficult to forecast numbers. Um, and so up until the very last minute, as I mentioned, you know, our numbers doubled on the global boardroom. Uh, over the course of two days, really. Uh, and so the buying behavior is very different. So that's that's one thing we need to take into account. And so planning is really hard for us. Uh, or, or trying to have an idea of how many people are going to attend. Um, obviously, the way people interact is completely different to, to live events. And so we know that, you know, by and large, people's attention spans are quite short. And so, um, you know, some of our events last for two or three days. Well, there's no question of us even thinking that anyone would sit at their laptop and watch an event for three days straight. And, you know, if you think of the physical world, you know that the same doesn't happen either. You, you go to a conference and you might go in for the first session, then you pop out for a coffee, then you go into a meeting room, then you go for lunch. And so those interactions are all gone and, and, and they're close to impossible to replicate. And so really the expectation that people would sit in front of a laptop for days on end, unfortunately, is just not realistic. And so I think everyone needs to accept the fact that people will dip in and out, they will have a lot more choice, and they will dip in and out and only, A, attend the events that are really important um, and crucial for their business, uh, and B, only listen to the content that is really, really, really important for their for their day-to-day -day, uh, survival through the crisis. Um, and so these are the, these are the kind of things we, we, we are observing. And so I think setting yourselves expectations is really important. You know, don't expect everyone to, to watch the entirety of an event program because it's just not realistic. Uh, in terms of tips, yes, I mean, listen, short, shorter is better. Uh, big, large panels just aren't going to work very easily uh, in a digital format. So we recommend no more than three people on a panel. Um, and then really trying to provide some sort of interactivity uh, through your event portal, and this is something we could spend days talking about different event platforms, but, you know, replicating that 
networking or that serendipitous moment is really really hard uh, online so you know the way you used to bump into each other in a in a hotel corridor over a coffee is very hard to replicate online and so that's that is the kind of thing everyone is struggling with at the moment without um giving away any financial secrets how uh, how are you finding getting delegates to to pay for things and and also you know are sponsors still in engaging uh with events you know we all at the end of the day we all need to make money somehow yeah really really good question so you know our our, our revenue mix in in normal days and normal years is a mix of sponsorship and delegate revenue um by and large our sponsorship revenue has held up very well and listen i think that is a function first and foremost of our brand you know i'm very lucky to be running an event business is one of the most formidable and well-respected brands in the world. And that the reality is that just helps a lot. Um, also, um, uh, with regards to sponsorship, those, those revenues are holding up well because, as, as mentioned before, we are providing much, much bigger audiences. Uh, and so instead of 150 people at the Four Seasons in Park Lane, I'm, I'm able to deliver two, 3,000 people on, on, on any event um, that uh, we are running digitally. And so suddenly, you know, the eyes on, on that event are just much, much uh, bigger than they were in the physical world. And thirdly, depending on the event technology you're using, you can provide quite a lot of insight and, and analytics with regards to who are your delegates attending. So uh, sponsors value those three things quite a lot. Now, when it comes to delegate revenue, it is a lot harder. And so, you know, usually in the B2B conference world, you're talking about anything from $800 to $4,000 to attend a B2B conference, depends on the market industry and type. Well, those rates are just not realistic uh, online. Uh, and so what, and we are, I guess we're kind of very much adapting an agile framework with regards to delegate revenue. And we are testing and trialing lots of different models. And so um, we are testing different price points we are testing uh, different formats. So you will notice on the the Global Boardroom Mark II, so you know, off the success of the first Global Boardroom, we are running our second Global Boardroom in November, the week after the US election. Well, this time around, we have a freemium model where it is still free to watch the event from a live point of view. And then we have two other paid ticket options, one which will give you access to the VOD, Video On Demand, for 90 days post-event. Um, and that's priced around the $60 mark. And that really is a kind of a, a convenience a convenience uh, ticket, right? So you're not going to be able to watch the whole Global Boardroom because it's, it's three days of content with hundreds of speakers. And for you know, $60, you can, you can watch that over 90 days. And then we have a, what we call kind of a B2B professional pass, which is priced around the $400 mark. And that gives you access to some closed door sessions with some of our journalists. So, you know, feedback we constantly get is that people want more access uh, and closer access with our journalists. And so they can have that. And then also access to the, to the networking function. Uh, and so we are actually adopting lots of different pricing models on different events. Um, and we're just kind of watching and seeing what's happening, really. And, you know, this is pioneering territory for everyone and no one's done it before. And so all you can do is test uh, and test and test, really. Uh, until the, the dust settles 
with those aftershocks. And so we're, we're relatively relaxed. And so certainly those, those delegate rates that we used to command in the physical environment are just, just not realistic. Um, but what we are seeing, and so at the recent FT weekend festival, we, um, I think we sold over 4,000 tickets. And I, I mean, these were, these were priced at a B2C price of, a, of around 40 pounds. And so people, we know that people will pay for really good content. The question is how much they'll pay and, and when they will pay. And so the, these are things that we're experimenting with. And I, so I guess there isn't, a, there isn't a, an answer, definitive answer on that, and we're, we're relatively comfortable with that. Actually, also, and that chimes with what I'm seeing uh, in my work at Deutsche Bank. A lot of the um, conferences that I would normally sponsor, as you said, everyone was kind of scrambling in this new world we find ourselves in. And I think the, the ones that didn't do it right just tried to copy it exactly as they'd done it before, but now say it's online and it's exactly the same ticket price and it's exactly the same sponsor price. And of course, uh, you know, I think all of the, uh, the, the sponsors kind of reacted to that because, uh, you know, the, the salespeople that I, I get these events ready for, they're, they're not used to this moving onto this virtual world. And uh, I think generally we haven't seen a great deal of value for the average salesperson that would normally be able to shake a few hands and have a coffee and, you know, really do some, some, some good networking. So I think eventually a number of these events um, chose to make the delegate passes free. But as you said, you get, you get access to a larger, um, a, a larger group of delegates and hopefully, if you do it right, as you said, some better analytics. Yeah, listen, what we're, we're, we're experimenting with, Jacob, and, and, and again, we're, we're very much in experimentation mode, um, which I find very exciting. I mean, obviously, it, it's, it's, um, it can be hard with the, on the team because, you know, the team has been used to delivering a product and doing it very well. And suddenly, we're thrown into a world where we're experimenting with all sorts of models and formats. But what, what seems to be working quite well is on, say, our kind of traditional conference, then we have uh, bespoke breakout rooms or what we call roundtables. And so a sponsor will have a carefully selected uh, group of maybe maximum 10 to 12 potential clients in a, in a private breakout room. And that seems to be proving quite popular because... Um, because it's still informal, but you also, just from an event tech point of view, you actually get to see people's faces a bit, a bit like the traditional Zoom or Google Meet call, um, and you get to spend quite a lot of quality time with it. So, the, you know, we're, we're trying to provide products with different sorts of levels. So, you know, some sponsors still want the big numbers, um, so they want that kind of brand alignment, and they want the big branding opportunity, and then... Uh, the same sponsors when maybe someone else in the organization a different division wants a business development opportunity right so the cmo will want to align his brand with the global boardroom because it's this amazing event that, that the fts launch but at the same time you know a, a managing director of one of your banking divisions needs needs leads to 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 sell his product right uh, and so i think you can accomplish that either on the same events or in separate events uh, and so really creating, you know, bespoke packages, you know, I say the, you know, I say to my team, the rule book has gone out com completely out the window, right? So when it comes to pricing, packages, formats, uh, everything is now on the table. 
um, which again is exciting, but sometimes is also unsettling. But you know, ultimately, the two guiding principles have to be chasing customer value. So there's no point uh, producing anything that customers don't value. Um, and speed is still one of my big strategic um, drivers. And so moving very fast is really important because we know the preferences change, the technology is constantly changing. And so we just have to be on top of it to, to, to be out in the market. But, you know, customer value has to be the other driver. Uh, and so if the feedback is that people don't want to pay or uh, prefer a different format, then you're just going to have to roll with the punches, I'm afraid. And, and that's just the way the, the world we're living in at the moment. So um, by the sounds of what you're saying, vir- you know, virtual has, has been um, successful for you. But I imagine that when hopefully normal, whatever that normal is, no normal, new normal, any, anyway, when we're not locked down anymore, <laughs> the, um, you can imagine that, that, that there will be some live events. Do you think that you will still have the balance will still be more virtual to, to live? Or do you think it may end up being that, that virtual will be supplementary to, to, to live? Yeah, very good question. Very good question, Belinda. So, I mean, just an answer to your first question, luck, you know, maybe we're lucky, maybe we're at the right place at the right time. Um, we've had a, a great year considering. We, we have between now and Christmas, we have about 180 events to deliver now. Some of these are small webinars, some of them are roundtables, other, other are three big shindigs with 150 delegate, uh, speakers. And so we have an unbelievably busy autumn. And I think today we ran six events and we've got seven tomorrow. And so it's very, very busy, uh, slightly nerve wracking, but it's a great feeling to be able to suddenly get back in the game, I guess. And, you know, we've been planning for this throughout the summer. Now, with regards to what's going to happen once, once hopefully soon COVID is over or there's an answer to COVID, I mean, listen, the, the reality is in terms of what we're planning for, and um, we are planning for 2021 to have, again, another uh, year with 100% digital events. And listen, these things are very hard to call, as you know. Uh, but when you have to plan in advance and we're beginning our budgeting process, we would rather be prudent. And so we're planning for a 100% digital calendar. And if and when the conditions were to return sooner than we expected, then we're very we're very capable of switching that live event tap on very easily. We've been doing that for years and years and years. And so, and so the, the beauty of having set up a digital event uh, business is that we can very easily switch back to live and digital as and when the conditions come. But, you know, I suspect that the conditions for large scale, large uh, physical events are still probably a year and a half, two years away. Uh, And so that's what we're planning for. In terms of what it'll look like when we come back, uh, you know, the word, the hybrid word is is probably one of the most commonly used words now in the events industry, but we are planning we have a small working group internally to try and define what does hybrid mean and what does hybrid look. And so the one thing we are uh, quite clear about is that digital now is never going away, uh, Belinda, because that global reach that digital has given us 
uh, is just a pretty phenomenal uh, development. And so even when we do go back to the physical world, and so the way I envisage uh, live events to come back is that there will be a relatively localized affair. So I think the days of the large international cross-border transnational events are many years, many years away from now, because even, even if the conditions, um, public health conditions return, we know that travel budgets will have been locked down. And people, most importantly, people's behaviors will have changed. And they will have realized that they can do a lot of business online without having to get on a plane. And so I think physical events will be a, a relatively localized affair, probably smaller and more intimate. Uh, but all of the events, we are now planning that as and when physical events come back, all of the events will have the digital component. So, and so essentially, they will be a mix of speakers that are physically based in whatever venue we use. Uh, but a lot of speakers, I suspect, will continue to be uh, zoomed in remotely. And then we will continue to broadcast out from that physical environment uh, to the rest of the world. Um, and really, why wouldn't you really, when you've got that opportunity uh, to really reach wider audiences, then it, it'd be crazy to go back to a world when you didn't have that. And, and so that's the way we're planning for the physical return. We also think the physical return will, will come back slowly. And certainly we will start with things like, um, you know, we might, we might run a big global digital event and then run a drinks reception, maybe in a couple of locations at the end of the day. Uh, for some local business people that do want to get together. Uh, we might start testing, running dinners, small intimate dinners, post-digital events. And so at the end of the day, there may be a intimate dinner between, between um, you know, small numbers. And so that, that, I think that's how we're going to come back. Uh, I mean, eventually you like to think that some large events will come back. But, you know, I think it's quite a long way away. I was rather hoping for the second half of next year that, that I, I might just manage to get a few smaller events events in. But um, yeah, I think that's what we're we're hoping that in the second half of next year, perhaps we might run some drink receptions or dinners. Uh, and as I said, listen, it, it, you know, the reality is chase customer value and customer demand. If people come banging on our door saying we're desperate for live events, well, we don't have a problem doing that. We can do those in our sleep, right? Um, but I think in terms of, you know, budgeting and planning, we, we need to be cautious. And so, and so we are planning for a 100% uh, digital year next year. That, that makes sense to me. Awesome. Uh, I like how you put it as kind of the difference between a global event and a local event. So um, there's an event that I'm uh, uh, planning uh, for for. Uh, next week is Cybos, and uh, Bank's one of the main sponsors of the Cybos event. Now, that's an event a bit like the Olympics, that it goes to a different city every year, and everyone flies in from everywhere around the world. But, of course, that's just not uh, a safe thing to do now. Uh, it's meant to be in Singapore next year. And I wonder, I mean, we all don't know yet, but I wonder if they do do what you've described uh, as a small Singapore event for Singapore-based uh, people with then a global, because they've had to go digital, obviously, for next week. So maybe maybe in, in some looking at this uh, half uh, glass, uh, a glass half full, is that people are now ramping up to run these large global digital events. So it, it should be something that you can do as an addition to your local event. Yes, and I know Cybos very well, and I, I used to attend it. 
um, in my years uh, when I was working at Euromoney. Um, I remember being jealous, thinking, gosh, I, I hope, I wonder if I'll be running one of these kinds of events one day, right? Uh, I mean, I, I then went on to run some very, very large events in the oil and gas industry, but certainly Cybos was one of those iconic uh, events in the banking and finance industry, which were just incredible, right? And so they they, they work on this, as you know, this east-west pattern. And so one year they're, they're in the east of the world and the other year they're in the rest of the world. And this is a, a, a real example of a truly global transnational event where people fly in from all over the world. Uh, and unfortunately for our friends at Cybos, I suspect that that model uh, is damaged. I'm not sure, I don't know if forever, but certainly for, for, the, for the next year or two, I suspect that model... Uh, will take a big hit because I just cannot see. And I think they used to get something like 20,000 people. Correct me if I'm wrong, Jacob. But those are the kind of numbers. And I just can't see, you know, 20,000 bankers getting on a plane and flying to to Singapore to go to an event next year. And so um, I suspect you're right. I suspect the physical component will be a very localized affair, uh, potentially Pan-Asian, depending on the conditions, maybe. Uh, but, you know, the, I think the big days of big things like the GSMA, the, the G, uh, Mobile World Congress in Barcelona, big landmark events like Cybos, uh, they will come back, but it'll take a long time for them to come back to, to the way they were before. And I suspect they will never be the way they were before. And, and as I've just said, they, that digital component, which, by the way, will, will, will be an opportunity for them as well, I suspect that that will be, will be there forever. And so, you know, people's behaviours change in big in big crises and in big um big uh, dislocations like this ones we have and, and they don't always go back to where they were before i'm really sad that unfortunately we, we need to kind of pull this podcast to an end i would like to ask you just one last quick question orson um when you recovered from covid um is the one single best decision that you've made during the last um, four or five months? Oh, I think, but without a doubt, it was the the global boardroom. I remember after that initial webinar that I mentioned earlier on with 6,000 people, I remember our CEO, John Ridding, saying, well, that was great, but can we do something a bit bigger and bolder with more speakers? Because, you know, the webinar had, had had three speakers. And I said, yeah, I'm sure we could do something big. And he said, well, how big can it be? I said, well, we can get speakers from all over the world. And he said, well, that sounds great. And how quickly can you do it? And I think I said four weeks. And I said, as soon as I said four weeks, I, I, I remember regretting it. And of course, uh, I guess I was trying to impress my new boss. Uh, but I, I vividly remember thinking, why on earth did you say four weeks? Because, you know, you've never done this before. How, how on earth are we going to do it? I can tell you it's one, probably the most exhilarating experience of my life also terrifying and scary um but without that that was a real that was a real um moment that kind of gave us lots of confidence and really shifted our thinking from digital being just a something that will allow us allow us to survive and not die to digital being a massive huge opportunity Uh, and so that was by far the the best thing i did that's amazing well I'd, i'd like to thank you both for joining me on this podcast And um, Jacob, I look forward to working more with you on the Financial Marketing Leaders Summit. Just to give it a little plug, December 2nd, if anyone's out there is interested. Uh, And um, yes, just thank you both 
so much. It's been really, really interesting. Thank you. And don't miss the Global Boardroom 2 in November. <laughs> we won't. We won't. We'll, we'll put it on the website so people can find it. <laughs> Thank you, Billy. Thank you, Jacob. Best of luck with your events next week. Cheers. Thanks, Thank you. Bye. Thank you.